tired of offending people who don't believe in Jesus. Oh, what do I think? Who cares? Let's tell them the truth. Don't give me, they're just living their truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if it doesn't come from the book, it's not true. Tonight we talk women's soccer and how they have exposed the weaknesses of socialism and high individualism. Plus, what does women's soccer have to do with Snow White and falling church attendance? You'd be surprised. And there's mounting evidence that puffing the magic dragon does more damage than good. This is your favorite night of the week, the Deep End on Tim Hatch, live. Welcome in, everybody. My name is Tim, and this is the Deep End episode 42 of season six. And I am your host, Tim Hatch, here on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Click. Click that. That's the like button. Click that. That's the subscribe button. And then click that. That's the notification bell. That helps you get notified every time we go live. I am a little bit under the weather here in the middle of summer, unfortunately. So pardon my voice, but we've got a lot to get to, uh, particularly with the fact that about half the country does not care that one of our own sports teams lost in international play. And that brings me to Deep End News. Deep, 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 deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So the U.S. women's soccer team, once a beloved institution of this country and now a very, very divisive uh, point of contention for our country, exited the World Cup competition faster than ever before in their history. And they exposed a serious problem with so- socialism and individualism at the same time. Uh, news reports a heartbreaking loss to Sweden on Penalty kicks, and if you've ever watched a soccer game, especially international play, sometimes the game can end in a tie leading to uh, overtime and then penalty kicks. And all of that is a wonderful combination for providing us with the most boring sport on earth. But nonetheless, 2.7 people, 2.7 million people tuned in to watch the U.S. team lose to Sweden in the penalty kick shootout with outspoken political firebrand Megan Rapinoe missing one of the final kicks and sending the U.S. home again at its earliest stage in competition history. Here she is missing her penalty kick. And then she got a lot of flack for kind of laughing and smiling as the U.S. team suffered greatly because of her miss. Is that a, I don't know. Why is she happy? She just missed the shot. Sports are complicated. Maybe she's just mad at herself or feeling highly ironic that the last kick in her U.S. soccer career would be a miss, costing them advancement in the tournament. So the reports are out. And a bunch of Americans say, who cares? Actually, we're glad they lost. And a part of me says the same thing. I am kind of glad that they lost because they are a polarizing institution. Uh, and we're going to discuss how they got there. So, so stay with me. Um, right now, even some pundits are saying that this team has gone way too political. Alexi Lawless, a former U.S. men's team, says that the U.S. soccer team's polarizing politics put them at risk of being irrelevant. And he got hammered on uh, Twitter for saying this, although is Twitter called X now? I guess it's called X. But, you know, the, the, the team loses and a lot of America says, good. And it, spo- it exposes the fact that this is not what we want from, from sports. We don't want politics from sports. We don't want politics from movies and entertainment as well. And the U.S. team has been suffering for some time 
with uh, what many people call Trump derangement syndrome. Trump derangement syndrome, TDS. There's no official medical diagnosis, but it is this um, hatred and contempt for America because of former President Donald Trump. It is a disease that people just can't shake. And Megan Rapinoe and her teammates have got a huge case of it. Well, many of her teammates, not the whole team. Let's be fair here. Because back in 2011, the team had no problem singing the national anthem proudly right before the World Cup uh, events took off. How many years ago is this? 12 years ago. There she is, Megan Rapinoe, singing her heart out. That's 2011. Let's go to 2015. The World Cup happens every four years on the odd years for the women. And here they are again in 2015, singing their hearts out for the national anthem. Watch. There they are. They're all singing. There's Megan singing. Singing. Hearts on... Uh, hands on hearts. Now you go to 2019, three years into Donald Trump's presidential term, and Megan decided that America wasn't a nice place to live in after all. Watch. There she is. Pink haired and happy to refuse to sing the anthem. What happened, Megan? What happened that in 2011 you were patriotic, 2015 you were patriotic, and now 2019 and 2023, uh, which we're going to show in just a moment, you say, no, 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 good. Because not only did Megan not sing in 2023, but the whole team basically didn't sing in 2023 at the opening of this year's World Cup. Watch. And the kids in front aren't singing either. Not even hands on hearts. There's one singer. So you have a very divisive politically political firebrand sports team representing our country and refusing to sing the anthem for the country that you're representing. What do you want to sing? You want to sing, I don't know, Eminem lyrics? (laughs) What would make you happy to stand there to represent your country? Believe it or not, the anthem is the national anthem, and it does have something to do with who we are as a people. Um, Megan Rapinoe, of course, took the Colin Kaepernick route and started kneeling for the anthem many, many years ago. And for her stance, she became a hero of the secular progressives in our country and a lightning rod of conservatives in the other half of our country, amongst conservatives of the other half of our country. But she's kind of a bully, as one of her former teammates testifies. Hope Solo, a teammate from the 2015 World Cup uh, winning team, said that she would almost bully her teammates to kneel during the national anthem. And then other footage of Megan Rapinoe catches her signing a soccer ball for a fan at a ESPYs. This is a award ceremony for athletes. And here she is signing the soccer ball for a fan and just utterly uninterested in who this person is, but just focused on herself. So she's caught a lot of flack and people will 
pounce on her, and I am somewhat pouncing on her because this is a person who hates America but makes a lot of money playing a sport, but not enough money. And that brings me to how the U.S. women's soccer team has exposed the problems with socialism. Socialism is a wonderful idea, is it not? It's a wonderful idea. But here's what uh, Ronald Reagan said about it. It's, it looks good on paper. <laughs> and here's what I have to say about it. Socialism is the one monetary policy that allows you to be greedy and seem virtuous at the same time. You get to complain that you don't have enough money, want more money, and then blame rich people or other people who have more money than you for why you don't have enough money. That is Megan Rapinoe. In a nutshell, for many years, she has called for equal pay amongst the players. The men's team make a lot more money than the women's team. And the reason why is because of something called the free market. Uh, Men's soccer, and not just U.S. men's soccer, but worldwide men's soccer, brings in billions of dollars. I think the number is something like $17 billion every time the World Cup comes around. Well, that money goes to the players. And the Women's World Cup comes around. It's a fraction of that. I don't even think it's over a billion. And so the women get paid less. Well, the U.S. women's soccer team took the Bernie Sanders route and said, we need equal pay for equal work. And they took their case to court and they won against FIFA. And they are going to get paid. And they're going to get paid a heck of a lot more money than their international counterparts. In fact, from the New York Times, the report is that the U.S. soccer team is going to get 10 times the pay of their international female counterparts playing for other countries, even if they lose and another team win the championship. This report says that the U.S. team stands to make $300,000 per player just for showing up to the tournament. Again, 10 times the amount that uh, women from other teams and other nations will be making this World Cup. Well, I guess this is what they wanted, more money, but what's the result? Less championships. But before we get to that, let's talk about how the money is going to come to them. Because they're not the, 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 the female World Cup is not making enough money to pay them, so they've got to take money where? from the Men's World Cup. Here's how it breaks down. If the U.S. men's team, and it's on the screen here, if the U.S. men's team gets to the round of 16 in the World Cup last year, and they did, they were awarded $13 million as a team. If the women's team wins the World Cup, they got to win the World Cup, which they have done several times in the past, including the last two World Cups, they would win $10.5 million. That money is then pooled into a pool of $21.2 million, and then that money is then dispersed 50-50. 50% goes to women and 50% goes to men, with a 10% cut each side to U.S. soccer. And then the women's team would get $459,000 per player for winning the World Cup. Now, that's equal pay. This is socialism. You take money from one high-revenue stream and you give it to a lower-revenue stream to say all things are equal. But here's the problem. For the first time in 12 years, or in three World Cups, the U.S. women's team did not win. And it's kind of ironic, right, that the first time that they don't win is also the same time that they make more money just for showing up. In fact, they're going to make equal money as the men's team, and they're going to end up doing less than they did when they made less money. Now, they, have made a, they may have won a financial win here, an economic win in their, in their eyes, but they didn't win the prize. The actual point of soccer is to win games, score more points, hold the trophy up at the end of the tournament. 
But Megan Rapinoe and her teammates don't care about that. In fact, even on the heels of her devastating loss and missed penalty kick, Megan Rapinoe was asked what was her favorite moment of the U.S. team's run this year. What she had to say? Equal pay chance. Watch. Is there a memory that stands out to you right now in this moment? Oh, um... I mean, probably equal pay chance um, after the final. Um. <laughs> so you, you lose a game, and they say, well, what's your favorite memory? Oh, the camaraderie, the teammates. I love my fellow players. They're my sisters. You know, we're, we're, you know a band of sisters. We're warriors. No, equal pay chance. <laughs> That's what she really values um, about this team. Which, again, is just socialism, taking money from the men's team, distributing it to the women's team. Now the women's team does less and gets paid more. And it is why I say socialism is the one monetary policy in the world that allows you to look, seem virtuous, but be greedy at the same time. You want more money for less work. You want more money or as much money as that person gets if they do the same work. Just because. doesn't matter who brings in more money. Just, just because. Just in the principle of it. And this is, guys, this is a test case for what will happen to America when or if socialism comes to, to our shores in full swing. It's not there yet. We're kind of a quasi-socialist free market system. And uh, there's a great push amongst the younger people for increased socialism. Uh, and I understand because you don't have as much money as your mom and dad. You don't have as much money as your grandparents. And, and you will, though, if you work hard and you put your, you know, your face forward and you stop worrying about everybody else, you start getting your act together and advance yourself and, and, and push yourself and, and grow yourself, you will eventually, believe it or not, make a lot of money. You probably will make more than your parents made if you work hard, if you stop complaining and work hard. But if you get it for not doing as much, Here's the rule the U.S. team just proved. You are not nearly as motivated to do as good of a job as you would have done. That's the problem with socialism. That's the problem w with Venezuela and Cuba and any number of other countries that have tried this idea that if we just give people money for doing whatever they do and it's all equal, the country will succeed. No, it won't. It will fall apart. It will flounder. It will do less. And that's what the U.S. women's team just proved. I, I hope you're taking notes because that's really the headline. That's really the headline of U.S. soccer right now. Socialism sucks. And you end up sucking because of socialism. Those are my thoughts. You're welcome to disagree with them. Let me know in the comments what you think. But there was also another attack of the U.S. soccer team, not just on free markets, but an attack on men. You see, men are evil for accomplishing things. That's really what it comes down to. Men are evil for making more money. Men are evil for bringing in more money. Men are evil for providing. And right in league with that is Disney. Walt Disney. Oh, remember Walt Disney when you used to love to take your kids to these movies? Now it's like cringe. I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I have ever thought to myself, I really want my kids to see this Disney movie. I can't remember the last time I said that. Maybe Frozen. But it's all been downhill since then. Uh, Disney is completely committed to losing money in the names of in the name of social justice or perceived social justice. And that brings me to the new Snow White that's coming out in 2024. Uh, Rachel Zegler is the star of the upcoming uh, live action version of the Snow White drama. And she was interviewed on a red carpet event with Gail Gadot, who plays the Wicked Queen. Um, 
about what the story is. And the story is clear from Rachel Zegler and Gail Gadot. The story is that women will be happy when they shed their need for a man and live out their truest potential and accomplish their dreams. And this is exactly what they said. Watch. I just mean that it's no longer 1937, and we absolutely wrote a Snow White. That she's is not going to be yeah. saved by the prince. She's not going to be saved by the prince, and she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be, and the leader that her late father told her that she could be if she was fearless, fair, brave, and true. So she's not going to be saved by the prince. This is the modern feminist movement. We don't need men. Men are useless. Men are pointless. Now, I understand why a lot of women get to that point, because they've been hurt very tragically by men. Men can be horrible, but they can also be heroes. And the theme of Snow White is that you can be saved by a man. A man can do wondrous things for women when he sacrifices himself, when he lays down his life, when he fights off the beasts that attack her. Too many men, unfortunately, have abandoned their roles as leaders, providers, and protectors, and have given themselves up to video games and pornography and drug use, and have become grown-ups who can shave. I mean, little boys who can shave. This is the problem. So the pushback from the females is that we no longer need you, but that's just not true. That's not true, and it's actually harmful, not just for society, it's harmful for people individually, because all the stats bear witness to this over the last 50 plus years, that men and women are most happy when they lay down their lives for each other and get married. This is a report from the Christian Post, uh, married people consistently most likely to characterize themselves as very happy. And this article says a new study reveals that married people have consistently been more likely to characterize themselves as very happy than non-married people over the course of nearly a half a century with marital status serving as the most significant determinant of an individual's level of happiness. Now, this report is called The Socio-Political Demography of Happiness. It's authored by Sam Pelsman of the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and examines the trends of general social survey conducted by the NORC at the University of Chicago over the past half century. It dates back to 1972. It's been conducted biannually uh, ever since 1990. And it asks the respondents, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? Well, the report that was released this past month reveals that marital status is and has been a very and I highlight that very important marker for happiness. He analyzed responses to the question about happiness in all the various general social surveys conducted since 1972, excluding the most recent research connected in 20 to 2021. Um, yeah. When a man and a woman give themselves up and serve one another and love each other, happiness is the result. When they stop fighting each other, when they stop pointing fingers at each other, they actually turn out happy. Now, again, I don't want to suggest, as many Christians do, that, that marriage is the only way to be happy. That, that's not true. Many, many people are married and miserable. That's, that's not the point. You don't want to set marriage up as this idol that will solve all your problems. But by and large, it is a good thing. Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. The first matchmaker in the universe was God. He took the man, put him to sleep, made a woman, woke up the man and brought them together. Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. And the Bible is pointing to a great marriage supper of the lamb where Jesus, the bridegroom, marries the bride, the church. God is very pro-marriage. And marriage in his eyes is 
When we stop blaming our problems on the other person and we start serving and loving and giving ourselves for the person. But that's not the message that Disney wants to communicate. No, 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 no. Disney wants to communicate the message that that women don't need men. In fact, men can get in the way. Men are problems. Unless unless there's seven dwarfs who actually aren't dwarfs. <laughs> this brings me to more news about this Disney live-action Snow White film. Uh, the seven dwarfs have been ditched for seven ordinary people. And there's one dwarf or one little person. I guess the word dwarf is out of the question here. But one little person and then six weirdos. You can see them there on the screen. And this is the new storyline that they have decided to take. What is going on with Disney? Are you just in it to lose money and lose reputation and lose fans? Because there's no way on earth that I am going to pay any amount of money for my child to see this horrible looking film that demonizes men. And then what's wrong with casting little people as dwarves? What's, what's the problem here? Ironically, they caught up with a very famous little person. Uh, this is Jason Acuna. He, he is uh, very well known as Wee Man from the Jackass series of movies. And TMZ caught up with him to ask him his opinion on the fact that Snow White will not, no longer have little people featured in the movie. Watch. Photos just came out showing that the Snow White movie replaced the seven dwarves with seven average people instead. Do you think Disney made the right choice doing this? Oh, wow. I didn't think this was going to be the question today. <laughs> um, it's funny you should ask this because a buddy of mine were talking about this the other day. And it's, see, and it's perfect timing for this because of all the AI mm -hmm. and all that that like SAG and the Writers Guild are going through. Um, it's a bad thing. I, okay. I'm not agreeing with it. One because what they what they're doing is pretty much you're 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 replacing jobs that people could have as little people. Okay. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It's for dwarfs, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we were discussing too uh, the other day was the Wonka movie, uh -huh. and Hugh Grant is now playing an Oompa Loompa. Mm -hmm. So I guess, Hugh Grant, you're now uh, identifying as a little person. Huh? <laughs> he makes such a fantastic point. Taking jobs away from little people, giving them to average ordinary weirdos. That's what's happening with Disney. You know, you go woke, you get broke, and you go broke. This is <laughs> the problem with modern society. And it's where we are going more and more as we, dis as we detach further and further from the gospel message from, from the Christian underpinnings of our society. You ever wonder where the story of Snow White comes from? Think about it, really. It doesn't come from Walt Disney. It doesn't come from some writer. It comes from the gospel. The gospel message is this. We are saved by the prince. That is the gospel message. That's why, whether it be Cinderella, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast... Uh, Frozen or Lion King, we're saved by some hero who risks his life to bring us to himself. That's the gospel message. The Bible says that we should, husbands, love our wives as Christ left the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and wash her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And Christ's gospel of giving himself for us is how we're supposed to live. So it is absolutely in concert with distancing ourselves from scripture that Snow White 
Now the message is no longer, I need a man to be happy or I need to be saved by a man. No, I can just make myself who I want to be. It is this quest for individualism, self-actualization, my dreams, my potential, my, my future is what is most important and you might be getting in my way and if so, you got to go. That's our culture and it's why we're so sad and depressed. Suicide rates through the roof. Depression, loneliness, isolation through the roof. All this messaging is not helping. And that brings me to the deep end commentary as we look at the same problem infecting the church. When we use the church for our own self-adulation, we end up not really even wanting the church. And that brings me to the deep end commentary. The Deep End Commentary. Out of the Atlantic, the title of the article is Why So Many Americans Have Stopped Going to Church. And the subtitle is The the Decline is Not Just About Religious Institutions, It's About Society Itself. This is by Isabel Fatal. And she talked to the quarterly magazine Mere Orthodoxy editor Jake Meter about this problem. This is a problem I've addressed on this channel many times. Uh, church attendance is going way down. Absolutely. The, the, the stats are clear. I don't think hardly any churches are back to their pre-COVID pandemic numbers at all. Some have grown. Mine has grown. Um, some have grown. But by and large, church attendance is dropping. Now, I, for one, am not concerned about that. R- really, I, I don't concern myself with church attendance dropping. And I've said many, many times on this channel why. And, and, and just so that we're clear, I want to just bracket this, the commentary with this thought. Number one, the church and the move of God, the movement of God, the community of God have always been a vast minority throughout history. Ancient Israel was God's people and they were the vast minority. In fact, God says to them in Deuteronomy 7, you're the smallest and you're the least. And that's why I chose you. I chose you because I want to show the world what I can do with nothing. And then the, the movement of Jesus starts with 120 disciples. They're vastly outnumbered. Even 10 years in, they're still vastly outnumbered and persecuted. Even 150 years in, uh, Emperor Julian is still trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. It takes 300 years. Eventually, they are the leading religious philosophy of the Roman Empire, but they're still only 10% of the empire. And, and so, you know... Uh, Christians have to understand this and believers have to understand this. We are a minority movement. We always have been a minority movement. And the fact that we are a minority movement does not negate our movement. Not at all. So I just preface this conversation with that. Don't, don't, don't get too worked up about that. We're, we're supposed to be outnumbered. In fact, the closer we get to Jesus' return, Jesus says, it's going to get worse in that regard. We're going to see vast numbers of professing Christians walk away from the faith because of the increase of lawlessness. The love of many will grow cold. Jesus says in Matthew 24. Anyway, let's get back to this article because it actually exposes something that is sorely lacking in the American church, which I for one want to get back. But here is how they discuss this issue. Take a drive down main street of just about any major city in the country. And with the housing market, Ground to a halt, you might pass more churches for sale than homes, two sociologists wrote in the Atlantic in January. And the facts bear out that visual. As Jake Meter, the editor-in-chief of Courting the Magazine, Mirror Orthodoxy, notes in a recent essay, about 40 million Americans have stopped going to church in the past 25 years. That's like 12% of the population, and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history, he writes. 
The book, the fourth, uh, the, his forthcoming book, The Great Dechurching, analyzing surveys of more than 7,000 Americans connected by two political scientists, attempts to figure out why so many Americans have left churches in recent, recent years. The authors find that religious abuse and corruption do play roles in pushing attendees away, but that a much larger share of, the po- of people surveyed indicated that they left the church for more banal reasons, as Meter puts it. The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Now, listen to this. This is this is really an incredible insight. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Listen to that again. He's talking about the fact that we are addicted to work and identifying ourselves through work. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Very, very telling here. As Meter puts it, part of the problem is the unusual role that religion has come to play in some Americans' lives. The Atlantic writer Derek Thompson coined the term workism in 2019 and diagnosed himself as a worker under its thrall. Quote, the economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production, listen to this, to a means of identity production, end quote. Thompson wrote then, quote, they failed to anticipate that for the poor and the middle class, work would remain a necessity. But for the college-educated elite, it, that is work, would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Oh, this is, this is fantastic, end, end, end quote. Uh, but here's the real... Uh, rubber hitting the road moment. Workism doesn't deliver on these promises, Thompson noted. Quote, our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of our faith, and they are buckling under the weight. A staggering 87% of employees are not engaged at their job, according to Gallup. That number is rising by the year, end quote. Even so, for those who have come to view work as the guiding principle of life, other priorities can quickly fall by the wayside. Quote, the underlying challenge for many is that their lives are stretched like a rubber band about to snap, and church attendance ends up feeling like an item on a checklist that's already too long, end quote, meter writes. Now, look at this. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. I can't, I can't stress this next line enough. This is really amazing for for The Atlantic to publish a piece like this. Meter, for his part, arrived at an ambitious way for churches to bring Americans back into the fold after reading The Great Detergery. Many Maybe churches could better serve their members by asking more of them, he argues. Quote, a vibrant, life-giving church requires not less time and energy from its members. It asks people to prioritize one another over our career, to prioritize prayer and time reading scripture over accomplishment. Churches could model better, truer sorts of communities, one in which the hungry are fed and weak are lifted up and the proud are cast down. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, according to The Atlantic, the problem with Americans not going to church is not the church. The problem is that they have turned their vocations into their new church. See, let me explain. You're going to find your value system somewhere. You're going to worship something. Now, of all the people that you would least expect to say something like this, I would imagine this next person is that person. 
This is Russell Brand, and he is a British comedian who has a very successful podcast, but he's kind of doing the Bill Maher sliding over to no longer hating religion and mocking Christianity. And he found out the truth that I am trying to teach you right now is that if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We will find our identity in something else. And he says he says the truth amazingly by finding it in the first commandment. One of the atheist's most despised commandments, thou shalt have no other God before me. He actually finds truth in it. Watch. When it says in the Old Testament, worship no other gods than me, the implication I offer is that we are a species that worships. And if you do not access the divine, you will worship the mundial. You will worship the profane. You will worship your own identity. You will worship your belongings. You will worship the template lane before you by a culture that wants you, no, wants you, but gets you distracted and relatively dumb. <laughs> Amazing. If we will not worship the divine, we will worship work. And the Atlantic has basically just made that case as well. You see, it's not actually God's ego demanding worship. It's actually God's care for us promoting worship so that we put the one who we are made by first. Because if we're oriented around him, everything else falls into place properly. So in sum, from the Atlantic article, Americans aren't involved in church because they are defining their lives by their work. And now they are more anxious and depressed. They have more mental illness. They're lonelier as a result because work cannot, work cannot define you. Also interesting, the case made by Jake Meter is this. That the church that grows is a church that costs you the life that you think you need. The life that says, no, don't put work first. Put God first. Yeah, bring your money to the house of God. Don't put money first. Put God first. Yes, raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Don't put them first. Don't put gymnastics first. Put God first. And let God be God. That's really what the Atlantic article is publishing here. So it kind of attacks head on. Seeker-sensitive churches, doesn't it? it? It attacks head-on the church that thinks, let me give an appealing message to people to, to tell them what they want to hear so that I can kind of lure them into this quasi-commercialized Christianity that will help them live better lives but really just build an audience for me. Oh, the truth is, is that people need to have something that is bigger than their lives. They need to, ha they, they need to have a purpose that is beyond their own identity their own thing, their own, you know, minutia of their own identity. That's, that's really what, what the church should be about. Or as our Lord Jesus put it more eloquently, uh, if anyone wants to come after me and does not hate his own father and mother, that's a source of identity, wife and children, another source of identity, brothers and sisters, another source of, of identity, and yes, even your own life, your self-imposed identity, you can't be his disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. It's amazing how often the terms and agreements that Jesus set out for the church are still the only ones that actually work. So why is the church losing members? Because the church has lost the message. And the message must be that anything outside of Christ is a fool's errand to follow. And that brings me to something that is going to hit some of you right between the eyes. I know it because there's a lot of potheads out there and I got to talk to you about marijuana in the church because too many of you are puffing the magic dragon and it's not good for you and the stats say so. So stay with me for Deep End Investigates.
are you a pothead? Because if you're not, if you're a pothead, I don't know how you can be a Christian. Honestly, pot is in. 24 million Americans are using it regularly. 4 million claim to be addicted and experience problems as a result. So you can say what you want. You can give me all the excuses you want. You can say, oh, well, it's not, the, you know, the Bible doesn't say don't smoke pot and all that kind of stuff. But the question is, does it help you? And a former White House advisor says absolutely not. Marijuana legalization movement linked to massive increase in mental illness in U.S. doctor warns. This is the former White House uh, advisor, Dr. Kevin Sabat. And he discusses that the push to legalize recreational marijuana across the U.S. has been linked to a troubling rise in mental illness, suicides, and an increased rate for psychosis. But money-hungry cannabis investors are leading the charge to commercialize the drug nationwide. He says, it's been generally bred to be much stronger than it ever has been, that is the drug, and has been driven by a money-hungry addiction for profit for profit industry that resembles really the worst of tobacco and alcohol. If you think about it, it gets you intoxicated like alcohol and tobacco, and then you inhale all these harmful compounds. There is a massive increase in mental illness as a result of this increase in marijuana use. We know that today's marijuana can quintuple your risk of psychosis and schizophrenia, which is the worst thing you can imagine. It increases about six times the risk of suicide. We have a suicide epidemic in this country. He argued that 99% of the people who become addicted to drugs like cocaine, heroin, and fentanyl start using alcohol and marijuana first. Yes. I, I don't care what people say. I don't, I don't, I don't want to listen to the excuses and to the postulations for justifying your marijuana use. It's not good for you. It affects this. And you only have one of these. Like, I don't have a backup brain. I can't go and put uh, this brain on the shelf, put another one in, smoke a bunch of marijuana, then take it out, put this one out, put my other brain back in. You're hurting your future. You're risking your own mental awareness, health, legitimacy as as a human really is what you're doing and you're going to only pay the cost yourself now that's from fox news and some of you say well that's fox news and fox news is conservative and you know media outlet let's go to johns hopkins university's journal hub page it's uh the science and safety of recreational marijuana and the question is asked what important research findings do you think are getting left out of the public conversation around cannabis. And here is the answer from Johns Hopkins University. As a society, we need an open dialogue and increased education about the risks and how to minimize the likelihood of harm for individual users. There just isn't enough discussion currently. For example, research tells us that there are subgroups of people with certain health conditions who should not use a product with high THC, the psychoactive component that produces the high in cannabis. These include individuals with personal or family history of psychosis who can end up in an acute psychotic state that lasts hours or days. Likewise, individuals with heart conditions or even asymptomatic cardiovascular disease can end up having a heart attack or heart failure despite exhibiting no previous signs of trouble. Then there's the risk of accidents that can happen as a result of impairment from intoxication. THC does, in fact, impair a person's ability to drive and impair plenty of other things such as decision making and sense of time. There's also the potential for interaction between cannabis products and medications people take, interactions that many physicians are unaware of. CBD, for instance, inhibits the metabolism of a wide range of pres prescription drugs, but few people realize this. So there's so many things that nobody wants to talk about in our quest to make this drug legal. And We've got to be aware of this. That's why you come to the deep end for the news you choose. If you could choose news, smoking marijuana is harmful for you. And, and, and here's the really scariest part is what I really want you to hear. You don't even know how harmful it is for you. You might not be able to have your body metabolize a prescription drug that is good for you, that is helping you handle some medical condition because you're also smoking pot. 
And, and if there's any history of mental illness in your family and you're smoking pot, it's like you're asking to be mentally ill. And everybody thinks that this is no big deal. It's a huge deal. And you know one of the ways in which you know that you're doing something you shouldn't do? It's when you try to find the Bible's passage in which you can use to justify it. You know it's sin when you go to the Bible to try to find a verse to justify what you're doing. Consider this powerful testimony from a Christian man who gave up pot six years ago and had a couple setbacks, but did that very same thing, trying to find the Bible verse to justify it. Watch. If you're a Christian who smokes weed, I want to share something with you. You see, when I came to Christ, man, this is one of the things I had to battle and I tried to justify it. I tried to, pr I prayed, I searched the scriptures. I prayed, I searched the scriptures and said, God, is it okay for me to smoke weed? And the answer continually came back as no. And I even tried using the, well, it's legal in the state now. And your word says that, you know, we're under the law of the land that you put these laws in place. So it's legal in my state now. But I remember as I was thinking that and praying that and searching for that, all of a sudden I came across a blog that said, if you're trying to say that it's okay because it's legal in the state, I'm telling you right now, it's still illegal federally. So you're still breaking the law. And I was like, dang it, man. <laughs> I was like, no, I want to get high. But see, here's the thing, man. We don't just pick up weed to smoke it for our joint pain. I know we, that's a big reason a lot of people use it now, but if you're gonna use it medicinally, use it medicinally. Don't smoke it because you're gonna get high. Take the THC pills, take the THC oil on your skin, not the one you smoke, and the cream and all that. I hear it works, I've never tried it, and I don't intend on it. Um, I don't necessarily fully say, yeah, go for it, but if you're gonna use that as your excuse, then use it the right way, not smoking it. But you see, we start smoking weed because we like how it makes us feel. We like what it does to us. And that's where the idolatry comes into play. You see, for me, it was an identity issue, man. Like when I came to Christ, I was like, what am I going to do with myself? Who am I going to be? What am I going to do? How am I going to feel? I couldn't even imagine a life of sobriety because I was so used to weed. I was so used to staying high. And me personally, I did not smoke it to cover any pain of hurt that I had or physical pain. Some people, like I said, um, do it because they're physically hurt, which do it the right way, man. And uh, others do it because they're hurting inside. And let me tell you something. Jesus is the only one that's going to be able to heal you. Nothing else. Nothing else is going to. And you see, you know, a lot of times, you know, they call it the peace pipe for a reason, man. Because if you hit that weed, you're like, oh, yeah. I feel good, but you know you're lying to yourself because you feel like garbage afterwards, man. The come down sucks. And sometimes even the smoking part of it sucks. Like, can you be honest with yourself if you're one who falls into this category? I've done it, man. I did it for eight years as a young guy. I know from experience. So whatever your reason is for smoking weed, I'm here to tell you, God wants you to repent of that. He wants you to give that up. He wants to be everything for you. So let this be your sign. Let this be the day you get sober. I celebrated six years sober this year, you know, and I wasn't perfect. I backslid. At one point I fell back for like six months, but the Holy Spirit didn't stop convicting me until finally the day came where I said, I'm done. And now here I am. And it's the best life ever. And the devil was lying to me when he said, who are you going to be? I was going to be greater in Christ. Amen. Oof. Powerful. Wow. 
Awesome testimony. And notice again, all that we've been talking about this episode, tying together in that one powerful testimony. Who am I going to be? The world offers me these identities. Work offers me an identity. Drugs offer me an identity. Uh, Sports can offer me an identity. Social justice can offer me an identity. But ultimately, if my identity is not first and foremost rooted in Christ Jesus and his shed blood for my sins, I am serving a losing, failing identity. And how many testimonies are you going to need before you finally give up whatever you're holding on to that's keeping you back from Christ and his goodness toward you? You see, in our country, we have so many freedoms, and sometimes the freedoms get in the way of following Christ. Not in China. In China, they don't have freedoms to follow Christ. And amazingly, people in China follow Christ harder if they are in Christ because of that. And I want to end this episode on really good news, because in China, you can get arrested for preaching the gospel, but some Christians say, that's a risk I'm willing to take, because my identity is not being Chinese. My identity is being God's child. That brings me to really good news. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. Okay, so this is a testimony of somebody who has been uh, saved by Christ in China, where it's not allowed to be an outspoken vocal Christian winning people to Christ. And this testimony is just so powerful. I want you to consider this testimony in your own heart as you see what God has called you to, being a part of this global movement that is changing lives and helping people find true, lasting identity and community. Watch. Here in China, there is such darkness. But even in the midst of this darkness, we are experiencing God's victory. I became a believer 10 years ago. I heard about Christ when I was on business trip. After that, my entire family came to Christ. But we are not free to share our faith with others. If you are spreading the gospel, Chinese government treats you as a criminal. They want to control the number of Christians. They want to control what God is doing. I hear from time to time of brothers and sisters being persecuted and arrested. Last week, a good friend of mine was taken by the Chinese police. He was questioned and then beaten so bad that he almost died, all because of spreading the gospel. In the city, everywhere you look, there are apartments. Since we can't meet in public, Our ministry takes place in the buildings we live in. This is like the early church. In the evenings, brothers and sisters in Christ gather together in homes. This is our church. 
If you ask people on the street, most have never heard of Christ or read the Bible. No one in their family is a believer. The dangers here are driven by darkness, and that darkness can be quite fearful, especially when I think of my family. But God never fears, and He will overcome. So I want to go and share, despite being at risk. I minister to the neighbors that live next door or upstairs. I visit them often. I listen and I share in their life. When I get the chance, I tell the story of Jesus Christ, and we pray. And the Holy Spirit works. Amen. Every week. We see new people come to Christ. Only two weeks ago, an amazing thing happened. We discovered there was another home church meeting at the top of this very same building. In our own building, God had brought up another fellowship. That really humbled us. The church is unstoppable. In the midst of all the darkness. All the persecution, the Holy Spirit is moving. He continues to prepare the hearts of people in China. Every day, I have the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ, even if it means I could go to prison. For who can have victory over God? Nobody. No matter what country. Amen. My goodness. Oh, powerful reminder, friends, that we we can overcome. Because what this country and culture is selling us is just a boatload of garbage, and only Jesus satisfies. Amen. Somebody in the comments, let me know that you will stand for Christ, that you love Christ more than anything. I, I'm so glad to bring you this content. I thought it would be good to have a good, healthy discussion about identity and purpose around Jesus, and keep you on track with what really matters in life. And、uh, what would actually help me out is if you visited our store at timhatchlive.com and bought some of the merch that is coming out right now. That's available. Also, my book Move is available still. still. It's up to like 45 reviews on Amazon. Do me a favor: if you have got my book Move, and if you've read any portion of it, go to Amazon.com, search Tim Hatch Move, and leave a review for the book. That helps the sales of the book. I do have another book coming out, but that's distant in the future. Support the channel through the Cash App, Tim Hatch Live, or TimHatchLive.com/support. And tomorrow night, back with the deep dive. <clears throat> and I think this is true. We've only got two episodes left of the deep dive study through. Second、uh, Kings, First and Second Kings. So we're rounding that study out. Join us tomorrow night. I will see you at 7:30. Then, other than that, stand for Christ. Find your identity in Him, and remember.
that if he defines you, this world does not have a hold on you. God bless you. Have a great night. 